Welcome to the Fred Tech Byte Podcast. I'm your host, Andres Mendoza, and with me is my co-host, Mark Walker. And thanks to Fitzy.org at Root for hosting us. Root is a one-stop public-private partnership to jumpstart new businesses and energize innovation in Frederick County. Dig deep, cultivate tomorrow. Thanks, Mark. So today's guest is Hank Abramson, right? And uh, he is an attorney at law here in Frederick who... Um, his his law firm is called Henry Martin Law. That's his full name right there. <laughs> that's the senior. That's the senior partner. <laughs> right. Which is Hank. Which is Hank. That's right. Um, and today we got to talk to him about you know a little bit about some of the uh, cases he's handled here locally, but mostly about IP law and things related to tech that you know as a developer you don't even consider. You know if I'm if I'm pulling in frameworks and code with open source. Uh, licensing and stuff like that, you know, I have to really do my due diligence on where all that stuff is coming from. Before you start. Exactly. Get all of your ducks in a row before you get too many ducks. Right, exactly. And, I mean, he talks about a wide array of different checklists that a startup may have to handle when it comes to, you know, doing an LLC and going from that to, like, taking on investors and then including things to get yourself ready for an acquisition if that's your plan or just selling software in general and things like that. So, you know, I thought it was very informative. There's so much. I mean, we could, we, we, we could have covered that in like a whole day if we needed to. It would have taken an entire day of right. sessions, you know, and a bunch of workshops to handle right. everything. And, and most of it, I'm sure, would have been a lot about law that, that could bore, <laughs> bore a lot of people and things like that. But in essence, um, you know, if you're interested or if you're in that phase that you guys are becoming a, a new company, you have an idea – you know, you need you need documents like an NDAs and non-competes and stuff like that. And anticipate, anticipate problems before they start. Exactly. Yeah. You know, somebody like Hank is there to help you with yeah. with your your company and things like that. So, you know, check it out. It's 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 very good, very informative. Um, you know, he talks a lot about so just things here locally and things nationally you'd have to consider. So trademarks and things like that. So. And some broader perspectives as well that people wouldn't have thought of. Absolutely. Yeah. So check it out. So welcome, Hank. You know, Thank you. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Thank excited you. to have you here. I'm and excited to be here. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about uh, your law firm and, and a bunch of different things uh, related to law. It's one of those topics that you don't you don't think initially, like if I'm creating a project for tech, it's like I don't think about the law. And then all of a sudden you're like, what? There's a lot of things you have to kind of cover your bases. Right. right. Sometimes we don't want to have to think about the law. You know, it's, it's right. not the most exciting topic. Especially when we have bigger and better plans of, you know, what we love and what we're passionate about doing. We don't think about all the other legal aspects of it. You know? Exactly, so. yeah. So you started your own law firm recently, right? Uh, what, about a year and a half ago or a year? Yeah, it was uh, beginning of 2018. Okay. So tell us a little bit about that, about your sure. law firm. Sure. So um, I was at Miles & Stockbridge here in Frederick, which is a larger firm in Maryland, and enjoyed my time there. Had a great experience, loved the people there and everything, but thought it was time to do something different. And you know, most of my practice is representing entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. and that's really kind of I discovered who I was at heart. And I kept thinking, you know, my clients are having so much fun with this. How come I don't have this much fun? You know, I'm sitting behind a desk, you know, punching out contracts. So I said, you know, I think it's time for me to open up my own business. What can I do? And didn't think about, oh, I could open up a law firm, right? So, um, so, but that's what I did. Open up my own law firm, and it's been 
Great. Um, so you're walking the walk. I'm walking the you walk. Walking That's exactly. Walk. That's and right. it, and it, to that point, it really helps me when I represent my clients too, because now I know firsthand what they're going through. And um, sometimes, even though I give out business advice, it's hard when it's your own business to know exactly what to do. But um, it's been fun. I love running my own lemonade stand, uh, so to speak. So That's a good analogy. I like yeah. That. Yeah. Um, so I, and I, I get to work with the clients that I want to work with, um, doing the type of work that I want to do, mm-hmm. uh, and how I want to do it. It's, it's been great. Yeah. Well, Lemonade Stand, your website talks about microbreweries. So <laughs> right yeah. Right. So, so real quick, like if, yeah. if, you know, you had to put your, your firm on a billboard, you know, what, what kind of law do you guys, do you practice? And sure. Companies you, t- you help out there. Yeah, sure. So I'm a business and intellectual property attorney. So that's what we do. I um, usually when I tell people about what we do, I put it in three silos of work. So we do um, corporate law, which is helping uh, folks start up their entities um, and their businesses and operate their businesses and their entities, whether that's through just picking the right entity for you, um, whether it's a corporation or LLC or, or what what it may be, um, to reorganizations, to bringing investors and new partners in and, and members and sorting all that stuff out. So that's on the corporate side. Then we do uh, general business, which uh, is largely contracts. You know, pretty much any type of contract uh, that you would have comes across my desk, whether it's uh, you know a master service agreement or uh, a license or you know an employment contract. Um, and also in that silo, I think our employee and contractor issues. We do employment agreements, contractor agreements, pretty much anything you would see things as a like small. SLAs st- and things like yeah, that. exactly. A, a st- uh, any type of business would come across uh, contracting wise. And then uh, in the third silo, you have intellectual property. And so I don't do patent, but I do do uh, trademarks, copyright, trade secret website agreements, so uh, privacy policies, terms of use, things like that, and a lot of uh, intellectual property license licensing, software licensing, and things like that. So, Very good. So you mentioned before you worked with a lot of, a lot of companies here, mainly breweries and tech companies, right? What are, the, what are a couple of companies you've worked with here? So I can't divulge who my clients are for, fair, yeah. for ethical reasons. Types but, of companies. But, types um, of companies right? Yeah, exactly. The, uh, so I represent all types of companies from breweries and tech companies to some of my clients are dog walkers, doctor's offices. Uh, my wife is a child psychologist, so I also represent a lot of therapists. It just happens. So, um, But uh, the largest portion of my book is probably tech companies and breweries, mm-hmm. which are two big uh, growth areas, especially here in Frederick, but also across Maryland. And so um, I represent a few breweries and brewery-related businesses here in Frederick and also all over Maryland from Eastern Shore, Annapolis, Montgomery County, Havard Grace even, um, so all over Maryland. And then a lot of the tech companies I represent do happen to be in Frederick, but Okay. Have you seen a huge boom in like that in tech? And because I mean, as a person who's not like directly day to day involved with, you know, tech companies here and breweries, I've seen a lot of breweries pop up. I've seen a lot of tech companies here yeah. now. Have you seen that as well? Yeah. Well, there certainly has been a growth in tech. Although, um, from my perspective, I think my practice has been relatively steady. Uh, I came to Frederick in um, 2006. So since that time, about 12, 13 years, I think the tech um, from the amount of work that I've been doing in tech has been relatively steady. But you definitely notice the boom in the brewery uh, arena. Uh, even in the past few years, there's been you know, exp- exponential growth in brewery 
um, brewery startups and things like that. And so they're fun businesses to work with Mm -hmm. um, and and they're great businesses. But, you know, even though they're in this really cool industry, you know, everyone likes to go out for a drink and they have really cool brands and everything. The issues are very much the same as any other business. You know, you have uh, leasing issues, you have employment and contractor issues, you have, um, you know, basic entity startup issues. So, right. you know, you see the same thing over and over again, even though they're in cool new industries. So, yeah, well, I mean, they, they have to get space just like any other industry. I'm, sh- I'm assuming, you know, like where they brew the actual alcohol and things like that. So yeah. I'd imagine it's a bit more intricate than some other type it of It is. And, and it's a little bit, um, the, the decision making is more complicated, as you say, because, you know, you start off here with one idea of the size of your business, but if it's incredibly successful, you may have to grow overnight. And if you don't lease enough space at the very beginning, you're going to be out really fast. Right. And on the flip side, if you uh, overestimate what you think your growth is going to be, then you're just paying for a bunch of area or maybe paying for a bunch of area that you don't end up using. So it is very um, a difficult, a more difficult decision uh, process there where you're dealing with big tanks and everything. So. Right. It, now, is that something you, you advise them with or is just one of those things you see that can be a potential problem, like a business problem that they may have to kind of address as a when they first start, whether or not they're going to grow pretty fast or... Yeah, I mean, no one really knows how fast they're going to grow or what exactly they're going to need. I mean, from my perspective, I help them spot the issue at least okay. and give them some ideas as to how others have grown or others who I've helped have grown. And I certainly help them with their commercial leasing needs, uh, you know, negotiate and draft the leases and, and things like that. Um Sometimes, you know, when it comes to their estimates for numbers and things, how, how fast they may grow, um, there's a gentleman, uh, Kevin Addicts is his name, who's the man in Maryland for wineries, breweries, and distilleries in terms of kind of helping you put together your business plan and everything. And, and I usually kind of work with him or, and direct them to him when it comes to the hard numbers. Now, do you think um, between like breweries and tech, which which you feel like has that problem even more so, whether they have to expand quicker or not? Uh, both both really have that issue. I think um, the path you see in the world of tech versus brewing, um, usually it's more if you get to that bigger size, then you're going to usually be acquired by someone, okay. um, which happens a lot more often than it does in the brewery world. Okay. Um, brewery world, you'll just you know maybe become a flying dog, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you could sell out to a conglomerate, but I think it happens more often in tech. Right. Cool. So let's talk a, a bit more about this, uh, you know, law, especially for, you know, regardless if you're tech or a brewery startup and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's talk about like IP, you know, intellectual property rights uh, with respect to like software. Mm-hmm. Um, you de- you deal with that kind of stuff as well? Yes. And so what do you see as, you know, some of the things that, you know, a new startup would have? Would they address that first or are there other things that a new startup would kind of address before going into that? So, um that's a good question. So the first thing any startup, regardless of your business, you should address is what type of entity are you going to be? Uh, you want to start laying a really good, solid foundation for regardless of what you're going to do, whether it's dog walking or tech or whatever. Okay. You want that solid corporate foundation from the beginning. And I tell people who I meet with, startups who I meet with, get a good attorney and get a good accountant because those two people are going to help form your foundation. Um, so the first decision-making process is really the entity. Are you going to be an LLC? Or are you going to be a corporation? Are you going to be some other type of partnership or sole proprietorship? And a lot of that decision-making 
It's dependent upon, you know, how many people are going to be involved in this thing. Are you going to bring investors in in the future? Maybe you want to go public in the future. You think that's a possibility? Are you going to deal with, you know, foreign entities or individuals or is it all going to be domestic? So these are a lot of the type of questions that you ask someone when you develop the entity. And based upon that, you'll usually come down. Nowadays, the LLC is almost always the answer for my clients. Mm -hmm. I work with small and medium businesses um, more than anything. Large businesses have a whole other set of issues when you get to that size and you have so many employees you have to deal with and there's other issues that are, that go on then. But for small and medium businesses, you know, the great majority of the time it's going to be an LLC these days. So that's usually where you start. And then and for it, users who don't know what that stands for. Sure. It's a limited liability company. Right. Um, there are a few different types of entities that are limited liability entities, meaning they provide you with limited liability. Um, so basically business liabilities that you might uh, accrue or incur as you do business, those are separated from your personal assets. So if someone were to sue you based on something you did through the business, um, your home, your car, your personal monies might are likely not going to be subject to that judgment, just what's sitting in the business. And right. so that's a measure of protection. I usually look at it as a relatively inexpensive insurance policy is what it is. Um, and it's, it's very important to remember, too, it's not total immunity. You can't just go <laughs> do whatever you want and rest on your LLC, but, but it does help. Um, and so... The reason why that's the first thing that you want to do is because when you get into the software development and you get into the intellectual property protection, these entities, I look at them as kind of protective pots. Mm -hmm. So you put everything into this pot and it's kind of shielded by everything outside of the pot. And so as you're developing the software and um, you're establishing these intellectual property rights, all those things go into the pot. And when you sign your lease, the lease is in the pot's name or the entity's name. Right. It's not in your personal name. And so... You're going to be making all these decisions as you're growing this business and establishing the, your business. Certainly don't want them in your personal name. So the first thing to do is create the pot so that you can put everything into the pot and have it protected. Okay. Um, so that would be the first thing. And then, um, you know, one of the first questions is uh, after you have your entity, are you going to be hiring employees? Are you going to be engaging contractors? Who's actually going to be operating and run the, running this business on a day-to-day -day basis? Based on, on that answer, then um, the client might need employment agreements or contractor agreements. And those are especially important in a business that's intellectual property heavy. So if your uh, business is software, for example, I work and also I work with a lot of uh, creative works companies is what I call them, marketing firms, okay. public relation firms, um, uh, businesses that create these kind of copyrightable works, these creative works. They're all very IP heavy. That's where the value of the company is going to be. So that's what you want to protect first and foremost. Um, so uh, we can we can even get a little more complicated with the structure too when we talk to someone because if a business is going to be IP heavy, sometimes what I'll do, and this is dependent upon budget, priority, things like that, is I'll set up a separate IP holding company. So it'll be a separate LLC and it will just be set up to hold the IP separate from the operating company. So if the operating company gets sued, the IP again is further separated. So okay. these are different things you have to think about. Um, and then you get into the issue of employers, uh, employees and contractors and protecting your IP from what they create. Um, huge issue in the world of especially software development 
is who owns these rights, you know, when they're created. So uh, this is especially important, and I've now been uh, part of uh, two or three nightmare scenarios in the world of tech. Some famous ones out there. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and personally, ones yeah. that I've helped that aren't so famous, but more kind of everyday on the street kind of guy. You know, they get to the point of building this company up for acquisition and they get the acquirer who comes in. Okay, love your business. Uh, I'm going to give you a multiplier. You know, I think it's worth X. Great deal. Okay, the, the core value that I'm basing this on is this piece of software you've developed. Okay. So they start their due diligence, diligence looking at the software and they discover, okay, well, you had, you know, three contractors working on the first section of this. Um, do you have proper assignments? Because under copyright law, whoever, if you have a contractor, um, if the contractor creates the intellectual property work and there's not an agreement that says otherwise, it's actually the contractor's, in, it's the contractor's property. I did not know that. Yeah. Oh. So, so this is, um, you might see this in the world of uh, like photography it's too. It's like you make them assign the rights before they even start work. Yes. So, so you go and get family photographs, for example, and the photographer takes pictures and, and gives you the jump drive. Well, unless there's something that says you own those, the photographer owns those pictures, not you. They may give you the license to print a couple out. They may give you the thumb drive to look at it on your computer, but you don't own those pictures. So, so where a lot of the problem comes into play is you may have contractors working for you at the beginning, building up the software. You never get a proper written assignment of rights from them to you. And now you've gone ahead for several more years modifying the, the software and everything, and you go to sell out and you realize, oh, there are chunks of this that I don't actually even oh, own. Yeah. And, and the whole thing starts crumbling. And, and I've been a part of a few of those, unfortunately. We've been able to kind of piece it together. We're, you know, in a relatively small town and people aren't leaving so, so quickly. So you can track people down and everything is a little bit easier and we've pieced it together. But that's one of the big things that like a software development or creative works type of business is going to want to worry about at the very beginning. Now, usually, at, so you, and I did not know about the contractor owning that part of the code and things like that, mm-hmm. but usually with an employment agreement, then that's the other way around where anything I create within my employment is now the employer's. Right. Yeah. If they're an employee, it's a different situation. As long as they're creating it within the scope of work, mm-hmm. you know, in the workplace, then yes, it becomes the employers automatically. The contractor situations where you want to be very uh, concerned about. Now, I've heard of stories that even outside of work environment, the company can own that. Is that something that's true, or is that just a tale? Yeah, arguably, it, it depends on your employment agreement at that point. Okay. Um, I've seen some pretty crazy employment agreements that say basically anything you create wherever you are while you're in our employee is going to be ours. Right. Um, as an attorney, if I'm representing that employee. I start crossing that language out because that's, that's a little overboard. Now, is that enforceable, though? Um, or is I, that case-by-case case basis, then? Yeah, I can't comment on where the courts are with that. I haven't looked at, at the cases. It's, it's a l- little overboard, but right. I don't know that it's totally unreasonable. Okay. I've always wondered that because, you know, if you were to work as, you know, I'm working for a company as an employee, I code during the day, but then at yeah. night I'm coding something that's, could be completely different, not right. part of the business at all, right. then who owns that? And like you said, it, it all depends on the employment agreement. Yeah, you know? yeah. so if, if you're even thinking as an employee, if you're thinking about, yeah, I'll, I'll go do my nine to five and, and I'll commit everything I have to the company, but when I come home at night, 
I have a cool little side gig. Right. Um, you want to make very sure that your employment agreement allows you to do that. Okay. Sure. It's good to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So, um, you know, you, we went pretty in depth with a bunch of that stuff. Uh, other contractor, like uh, other agreements, you know, that you usually handle your non competes and NDAs, are those pretty common as well? Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's business to business or business to individual, those are very important, especially for a tech company that's going to be most likely working on something incredibly innovative, cutting edge, brand new. Um, if you're looking to, you know, um, uh, work with a, a colleague or a partner or bring someone into the business before you even start talking you definitely want a confidentiality agreement or non-disclosure agreement mm-hmm. um, so that both sides agree hey we can openly share but it's not going to go beyond these closed doors but there are times that i've heard like a lot of times people would say i have this idea but i want you to sign an nda and it's like well honestly unless you're going into the intricacies of the idea ideas are a dime a dozen, right? It's how you execute the idea that makes you different from any other company. So if someone had approached me, say I'm a software developer or I work in IT in some capacity and they need my skill sets, but they want me to sign an NDA before they even tell me the idea, is that mm-hmm. something I would, I should sign or should I just be like, uh, you're kind of wasting my time here. Just tell me the idea. Depends who I represent. <laughs> um, no, both sides have to kind of go into that agreement thinking practically. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's a matter of leverage too. For example, if you think you have a great idea and you want to take it to whoever, um, you know, Procter and Gamble or something, chances are because they have all the leverage in the world, they're not going to sign Unless, any right. confidentiality agreement. And so then you have to make the decision, do I share or do I not? Um, I've had clients who come out on the wrong end of that. And uh, although you can't absolutely prove it, there have been um, innovations that have come out that you're like, that's exactly what they they told them about. And so uh, you have to be very careful. Um, But in that situation, you know, the company can just say, oh, that was in the works for a few months already before we even saw your idea or knew what you were talking about. Right. um, Very hard to prove. But you do the best that you can. And you have to think about it practically and, and um, make sure you're protected all, all the way around. So That's good. Okay, uh, one last note on that, then the you know, non-competes. Um, you know, as a software developer, if I sign a non-compete, usually that's attributed to the industry that I'm in. Or is that in general? Which one is it, though? So um, non-competes are um, have to be limited in terms of time uh, geography and scope okay uh, if you go beyond certain terms in any of those three categories it could be seen as unenforceable so for example in terms of geography usually depending on um, how national or international businesses typically typically if it's a local business you do something like 30 or 50 miles from the facility and they're okay. Um, sometimes the businesses are mid-Atlantic or they're East Coast or they're even national. And so you get into questions of enforceability there. Time, usually you can go up to about three years on a non-compete, but that's kind of the limit of enforceability generally. And again, it's it can be situational. And then scope, like you're talking about, um, if you get too carried away with it, it won't be found enforceable. So maybe it's just, you know, in your particular line of business or just a type of programming if, if you happen to be doing that type of programming for them. Um, 
but you, you definitely need it to be reasonable or else it's not going to be enforced. Right. Yeah. I mean, if I'm signing a non-compete that I can't code in general, like after I left, that, that right. just doesn't make any sense. Usually, and, and, you know, employees certainly don't like a non-compete. And usually the businesses don't even like a non-compete because one, it hurts their ability to bring in talent because a lot of talent uh, objects to it. And two, they're usually not going to enforce it anyway. It's just something that's kind of left over in the contract. I think what's more important, what I encourage my clients to do more often is non-solicitation, which is a little bit different than a non-compete. Okay. Non-compete says you cannot compete against me for such and such time and such and such area and period. You can't do it. A non-solicitation says, yeah, you can compete against me, but if I have um, non-solicitation for employees, it means, but you can't come back and take my employees from me to help you. Or if it's for customers, you can't come back and take my customers that you um, developed a relationship with right. while you were working for me and take those with you. That, I think, is a much more practical and effective solution because I don't think anyone, most people don't really want to shut someone down from doing what they want to do. They just don't want to be hurt by it, mm-hmm. um, by the fact that they brought you into their company and paid you and, and you work for them. And so um, I think that's just a much more practical, effective approach. Yeah, yeah. And the, are some of the contracts, do they have um, severable sections in them where if one is found not enforceable, that doesn't kill the rest of it? Yeah. Uh, every contract that I do, and most contracts that I've seen have a severability clause is what you're talking about. And it says, okay, well, this non-compete, if it's found to be unenforceable, that doesn't mean the whole contract's unenforceable. We'll just take that little piece out. There's different ways of drafting that. Sometimes you're just silent and they take it would they would take that piece out and that would be that. Or what I often do a lot of the times is it says, okay, if it's found unenforceable, then the parties agree that we'll rewrite the language to match kind of what our intent is to the furthest extent permitted under the law. So you would kind of redraft it and it would be as protective as possible as allowable under the courts. Very good. Okay, so let's talk about bringing in investors, right? Like you mentioned before, um, and that, that goes into how you kind of set the foundation of your entity. Um, so let's assume that, I guess even before we go into that, you you can change that entity, right, as you progress. Can I go from, from a sole proprietorship to LLC and things like that? Yeah, um, you can. There are always issues of kind of transition. There's tax issues on the back end of it. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly hard to go from like a C corp to something else. Okay. Because C corp is more stringent corporate wise and tax wise than most of the other entities are. I don't want to get into all the nitty gritty details and bore <laughs> everyone to death, but, but just trust me on this. It's more difficult. Um, but it is relatively easy to go from a sole proprietorship, for example, to an LLC or an LLC even to a C corp later on. If you want to do it, you can. And if you wanted to bring in investors, then you would typically, if you're a sole proprietorship, you would want to go into LLC, right? Or can you bring in investors as a sole proprietorship? Well, no, it would be a partnership. Okay. So a sole proprietorship under law is one person. Mm-hmm. You're basically doing business as yourself. The business isn't seen any different than you. It's just you, okay? Uh, a partnership is the multiple um, person um, uh, um, version of the sole proprietorship. So it just means two, two or more people are getting together to make money together, and you have a partnership nothing more if you you don't even have to have a written agreement and if you don't everything's basically 50 50 management cash everything um but there's no limited liability protection with those entities which is why 
you, unless you're literally running a small lemonade stand, you don't you don't usually stay as a sole proprietorship or even a partnership. You go for one of the limited liability type of entities. And so that would mean an LLC or S Corp or C Corp. Um, so LLC can be a single member, meaning you just have one person in it. And it looks very much like a sole proprietorship, except you have that bubble around you. Uh, and then you, you could also be a multi-member LLC, which means you have multiple people in there, like a partnership, except you have the bubble around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so depending on how many people are going to be there is how you would set it up. And LLC is a pretty simple setup. It takes filing articles of organization with the state that gets you recognized with the state. And then I uh, recommend having an operating agreement, um, even though there's only one person there. The operating agreement is basically your rules of the road for operating the entity. What's the management going to be like? How are the monies uh, going to be split? You know, profit loss allocation, cash flow distribution. Um transferability of shares. Can I sell my shares to anyone? Now, again, in a single member situation, it's not like you're going to argue with yourself. And so, you know, if budget is really tight, you might not do an operating agreement. But if you want partners coming in in the future, you have your paperwork there. Also, a single member LLC can be a red flag for the IRS because some people try to hide behind them. And so it's just one more piece of evidence that you're legitimate. And so I usually recommend doing the operating agreement. Okay. Yep. I would have never thought that. The tax, <laughs> the tax wise yeah. coming in right there. So. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So then what, you know, let, let's assume you a new LLC established on that. And now we want to take in investors. You know, what's, mm-hmm. what's the process there? So um, it depends if they're kind of mom and pop. Um, uh, friends, family, and fools is what they call them, the three Fs. So it's, you know, Aunt Sally has some money she can loan me. Mom has some money she can loan me. And then it's a question of, do, they, do you want it to be a loan or you want them to actually be a member? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one set. Another set is people you don't even know that whether they're in the state or out of the state and they're pure investors. And that can get complex and complicated, uh, which can lead to you know having to do SEC filings and all kinds of stuff. If you don't know them and they're out of state, um, it gets pretty complicated. And but that's still at this point not a publicly traded company, but you still Correct. have SEC filings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because at that point, you're selling securities. Um, okay. And you're selling securities interstate if they're out of state. So it's it becomes a federal issue. So, you know, one of the things that I talk to my clients about is, you know, they come in with all kinds of great ideas. I want to bring this partner and that partner and this person that just say, whoa, like, <laughs> let's, put, let's put the brakes on for a second because what you're talking about can get really complicated really fast. So what I like to do with my clients is before we get to the answer – Let's look at what your objectives are. What are you really trying to accomplish here? Based on what you're accomplished, then let's take a look at a couple different ways you can accomplish that objective. So if the goal is we need money, we want to bring in a partner because we need financial resources. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, there's a couple different ways to do that. You, you know, when you bring a, a member into your LLC or a partner in, it's like letting someone in into the door, into your house, right? right? And if this is a person you don't know very well and you're just letting a stranger into your house, imagine all the things that could happen. You don't know if you can trust this person. You don't know what they're going to do inside the house. And so that leads to a whole variety of issues. So the first question is, well, if you need finances, can we just set this up as a loan? Right. You know, with a reasonable interest rate, a reasonable rate of return for the investor, 
you you get what you need, you get the money. They get a return on their investment, which is really what they're looking for. They don't really want to be part of this LLC, and the parties are happy. And you could set it up that way, and you never have to worry about letting someone in on the inside of your house. But in in the in the um, events that you want someone to be truly a partner to to go on this ride with you, and and you trust them and everything else. Then we can look at that too, and and hopefully it's a it's a one of the three Fs, and we don't have to get into Maryland fly, filings and or uh, SEC filings because again that can get really expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know we'll do what we need to do to accomplish your objectives. The most important thing though is if you're going to bring someone in as a partner, more important than anything else, I think is that you two people or however many people it is have the same vision for where the company wants to go. Because that's, the, the going back to the foundation, that's where the cracks lead to business disputes. If, if the two people or multiple people don't have the same vision for where the company should go, it's almost automatically gonna end up in a dispute or a disgruntled member or something like that. So I say have a lot of conversations with the person with an NDA in place about exactly what you want to see out of this company and where you think it should go. And if you're in line, then we can start talking about the different ways to get there. Have you seen that a lot where you know, disputes lead to literally dissolution of the companies and things like that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's, I live it. I see it every day and it's unfortunate. It's like, um, it's just like a marital divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, it can just be, be just as painful and um, as harsh financially as the marital divorce can be and everything else. Um, and sometimes it doesn't, you know, it doesn't always mean that the, the one person or multiple people had bad faith or were trying to do something deceiving or anything else. They could, I had a situation where both guys came into this company with great intent to make this thing successful and fly. And they just had different personalities and they were just rubbing each other the wrong way. Neither, neither of them was doing anything wrong. It just, it wasn't going to work. They had different visions and it was going to a bad place. And unfortunately they had a, um, operating agreement for the LLC that, uh, in my opinion was written pretty poorly. And so the way it was written was if they had any kind of dispute in, and they couldn't resolve it in like 15 days, the whole thing would just go poof. <laughs> and so they were under this major time crunch to make sure it didn't go poof immediately before they could sort out what needed to be done. And, you know, so it's always very important to, um, get your operating documents, uh, done well, not just done, but done well, because I've seen a lot of nightmares. In fact, a good chunk of um, my business comes from the fact that people have used online services, not knowing what they've needed, and just start pulling documents. Oh, and these things, type documents. Yeah, these mean. things are just not written to the situation and lead to all kinds of trouble. So, I don't even try. To, I don't even tell people under no circumstances don't go to an online service. But I do tell people at least know what you need. Right. Get the legal advice ahead so you know, do I want to be an LLC or do I want to be a corporate? Do I want, you know, and then maybe take a look at those documents, at least knowing what you need. But mm-hmm. um, to just start grabbing and pulling leads to bad situations quickly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it sounds like a nightmare if you're yeah. not careful. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, you know, so... Um, what, what would you say are, are some of the common you know, mistakes that tech companies make, either early on, in the middle, or even late in the game if they're trying to get acquired or things like that? Yeah. 
So uh, I think it really comes down to what we talked about before, getting your ducks in a row and getting your ducks in a row early. It's a lot easier to kind of form the proper processes and procedures from day one than it is to run for six years, have an acquirer come in and then figure out how you're going to, you know, get all your ducks in a row at that point. So think about from the very, very beginning, get a good contractor agreement set up so that you know you have these rights coming to you. And and in the event that, um, you know, for whatever reason this you lost the assignment or it can't be found, you know, you can reach out to this person and they agree to cooperate with you All in the future. before you have too many ducks. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Employment agreements, make sure you have a good employment agreement. Make sure if... Um, this is you're working with clients to build custom software, for example. Make sure you have a good master service agreement and statement of work. The master service agreement is going to have all of your policies in it. Um, and, and these are documents that you can use over and over again once you have a good standard base. You don't need to recreate the wheel each time if you do it right at the beginning. Right. So, so those so. are some of the things that an early, as an early startup, I'm not going to think about. I'm just thinking, let's, let's take action on the idea that we have. Let's go right. forward. But if I'm sitting here with you and we're trying to create LLC, is that like a checklist you would give me and say, look, as much as I know you want to go forward with your idea, if you don't take care of these things, it's going to be a big deal later on yeah. if you're trying yeah. to get acquired. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I do when I meet with new startups is, I'll sit there and we'll talk about where they want to go, what their objectives are. And then I'll kind of give them that task list of these are the things you should that should be on your radar to do things right from the beginning. And then I say, I know you have a limited budget. Everyone has a limited budget. You can't always do everything right off the bat. So I help them prioritize what should be done kind of first. And then as their budget grows, we can start building the foundation. Um, but I just worked with another guy a little while ago. He is a nice growing a web design business but same kind of thing Uh, he was using a whole contractor and subcontractor kind of model to have other people do the work while he kind of sold and then present the client with the end product but he didn't have the assignments in place and and so the client started asking him for assignments of rights but he didn't yet have the rights because the contractor still had rights so we kind of had a now, he was only about a year or two into it, so okay. it was easy enough, and we went back and we rebuilt everything. Mm-hmm. But you can imagine how much harder that would be if you're 10 years into right. it, and you have someone who's looking to buy your company. It's just, you know, it's a huge problem. So those are a couple of things. that The other thing that, that I talk about with my clients is brand protection. So your brand is going to be, it's, it's your name. It's how you sell in the marketplace. It's mm-hmm. incredibly valuable. Sometimes it's part of the acquisition deal. Sometimes they want the, the name and sometimes they don't care about the brand. They just want the software and they're going to rebrand it. But um, where they want the brand, you definitely want that protected. And you want to do it from the beginning. And one of the big problems is if you start using a name and you haven't done your due diligence and three years goes by and you've built up this company and you get a cease and desist, hey, that's our name. What are you doing? You can't use that. And then you're in a real pickle. Right. So the first thing is I always recommend people do at least a simple trademark clearance search just to make sure there's nothing obvious out there. Um, I realize it's a budget issue and a federal trademark is not inexpensive. So I get that. Maybe we can hold on that a little bit. 
but at least do the clearance search to make sure you're not stepping on someone else's toes. And then as you build the brand, it's going to become more and more important to protect it on a federal, maybe even international basis. And you go for that federal trademark and you get the federal trademark protection. Um, but that would be another issue. So. Is that something that I could, I could easily do myself online or is that something you suggest I do with you? You know, like you said, if my budget's tight and I want to do the, at least the initial, hey, is this name unique enough for me to kind of pick up and then start yeah. LLC with? So I'm always really sensitive to the fact that it's when people ask me that question, it's kind of self-serving for me to say, oh, no, you should get the attorney because, you know, that's how I make my living. But really, you should get the attorney because, um, yes, the, the initial trademark search, now that most of us are very accustomed to kind of the Internet and websites and logos and marks, that's part of all of us now where it didn't used to be. Mm-hmm. We have a better sense for if something is kind of ripping us off or too close to us. But I have special education and experience that allows me to know where an examiner, for example, or a court is going to sit on a particular issue as opposed to a client. And so I have issues where a client is going through one right now where uh, he started a business here under a certain name and it's becoming pretty valuable and well-known. And another similar business out in um, the Midwest um, started operating under a similar name. And they contacted him and said, hey, we're about to open up shop. Would you mind if we use this? We're all the way out here in the Midwest. And he didn't think too much about it. He said, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay. But now he's thinking about distributing nationally and out through the Midwest. And now they've been using this thing for you know six months or a year. And they're starting to get consumer confusion in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, it's showing up on Instagram posts, on, on Facebook, on social media and things like that. And it's becoming a real issue. And we may have to put an end to it, which is unfortunate because he, you know, he kind of gave them a go ahead. Right. So, um, you know, you get issues like that as well. Um, and so, you know, as if you were the client, you may think to yourself, well, what's the big deal? I'm, I'm located here and this other company is in Texas. Yeah, fine. It's okay if, if they go ahead with it, but you don't know what's going to happen in the future. And federal trademark rights are national. They're not local. So I know that, like you said, um, a lot of the platforms today, you know, it's a smaller world with the internet. So if I'm on Instagram and I'm looking at this company or on Facebook and now like I'm confused, like which one's what, where, right. You know, depending where you live. Right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Especially if they're operating under similar names. Even people living here are going to see the logo from that company out there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's international. Um, you know, when I started doing trademark work, it, it was 2004. So it really wasn't close to what the internet has become. And so people, didn't you know trademark was kind of an afterthought unless you were a really big business but now even small mom and pops you're on the internet and right everyone yeah. can find you through google that's so. right you google or your own website and things like yep. that so it's become a, a bigger thing to worry about right yep. from a legal standpoint exactly okay so beyond those those couple things that we've talked about are they are there any other like legal gotchas that startups should kind of like look out for or at least think about you know, let's say think about if they're going to hire an attorney to start all this thing, to start their startup up. Um, those are really, at least in the tech world and, and for most clients, those are the, the big things. Getting the, the entity set up, employees and contractors, getting your contracts and processes in place. Um, 
much of the other stuff, frankly, is tax stuff. Make sure you're set up with a good accountant and you have your tax stuff in order. But but those things in combination, we talked a little bit about the leasing, the commercial leasing. Make sure mm-hmm. your lease is in a good place and you're set for you know to be in a certain place for so long and uh, you like your landlord and everything. Those are generally going to be the big issues. Um, we talked a little bit before about switching entity types. Right. When you switch entity types, um, you want to make sure, again, especially in the world of IP, you think about it in terms of pots. Well, if you're a sole proprietorship and you become an LLC, you're moving from one pot to another. So you want to make sure that you move everything from the one pot to the other. And that's done through relatively simple assignments. Mm-hmm. But you want to make sure it's done. You always want a paper trail of rights Um, from one place to the other. So again, you get to the end of the road and you get a choir coming in, you can show, okay, a kind of chain of title. Yeah, I I developed this when I was still a sole proprietorship, but look, I have the assignment here, it goes to the LLC, then I put it over into the IP holding company and it's sitting there now. So always have the chain of title uh, is important. You know, I, I think from a startup perspective, that gets you pretty far down the road at that point. You even though you have a limited liability entity, if you do, you want to think about commercial insurance, uh, business insurance, mm-hmm. and especially in the world of tech, if you're developing software and things, you typically need an ENO policy or one ENO policy with errors and omissions, which protects you if you, if you you know do something wrong in the code and it creates viruses in someone's computer or leaves open a firewall, for example, or something like that. Uh, you the errors and omissions insurance would kind of cover you there. Um, the other issue uh, in the software world specifically is the use of open source, which can create a whole other set of problems for you. Again, when an acquirer comes in to look at your code and look at your software, almost everyone uses some open source in their software. Um, but it's especially dangerous because we talk about wanting to make sure what's developed by your contractors is in place. Well, when you have an open source module, that's created by who kn- you, who knows who. Right. You don't know who created that or how they created that, whether that was created as a unique, good, legitimate work, or if it was ripped off from someone else and is tainted by some form of infringement. And all of that follows that code all the way through, and you could be found vicariously liable for this person's uh, infringement if you're using it in your code. So you have to be very careful. So the use of open source is delicate. The other thing is each open source um, the piece of software has usually has its own kind of licensing scheme. And so sometimes they're not meant for commercial use or there's certain limitations on in, built into that license. So you have to make sure anytime you use open source and include that, one, be especially careful that it's not tainted with some sort of infringement. And two, make sure you read that license very closely to make sure that you can use it in your software and sell it and use it commercially and everything else because that can get people into trouble as well. Right. What um, are some of the popular ones that you know about? Well, I, I don't. There's a gazillion there types is, yeah. out there, so um, people will see. You know, you you all see the the general types that are in almost every piece of software. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, so then that comes into into the reps and warrants. So when you when you um, the acquirer comes in, you're selling this piece of software. You have to be very careful on that end and the contractor employee end with your representations and warranties. So that the person who's buying your software is going to want you to represent and warrant that this isn't this is a unique piece of software and it, it's not um, tainted with some form of infringement and 
your contractors all signed assignments and you own all the rights to that software and all these various things are going to present themselves someday sooner or later so Mm -hmm. you should have it all in place as early as you can and and kind of have your checklist for every time you have someone help you with some form of the software so that you know it's it's in place and it's good yeah and i guess that that also goes into like what what is your ultimate goal right like if your ultimate goal is to sell your company then you're going to have to get those ducks in order you know, sooner than later, right? Yep. Understand where the code's coming from, um, using different frameworks, because most frameworks, like you said, are open source. And it's one of those things as a developer, it's like, I'll just pull this in, I'll pull this in, this looks fine. Yeah. But then now if I'm trying to sell it, it's like, wow, <laughs> Whoops. I got to account for all that stuff. You know? Right. You know, compared to like, if I'm just building a company that I don't intend to sell, but intend to grow, I still should be a little more diligent, right, in terms of what I'm pulling in, but more than likely, I'm just pulling code that if it is open source, I know it should work. You know, I'm not trying to sell. Yeah, but, but even then, I mean, you're going to be selling the software, I would hope, or else you're just, well, yeah. you know, I don't know what you else you would be doing <laughs> with it. You're licensing or selling it. So you're going to have to make those reps and warrants to the end user, right, at some point. Um, so even if you're holding on to your company but you're and you're just selling or licensing your software, you still represent and warrant to the end user that they that you have the right to do this mm-hmm. and that this isn't a form of infringement for which they're going to get into trouble and all these various things. And so you want to make sure that the licenses from the open source don't prohibit you from doing what you want to do, whether that's ultimately selling the company or just selling the software or whatever it is. Right. So you always have to be careful. Okay. Good to know. Cool. So um, let's go back a, b- a little bit about you. Um, you know how how sure. we met. Um, sure. You liked you actually volunteer with uh, Fitzy, right? And you're one of the advisors. I'm on the uh, board of advisors for Tech Frederick, um, which is an awesome organization here in Frederick, right. and and um, devoted to kind of building up the tech community in Frederick and mm-hmm. making sure that all those uh, folks who drive down the road every morning know, hey, there's jobs and there's talent right here in Frederick. You don't have to drive all the way down the road. We, we're right here. Right. Um, because Frederick is becoming a wonderful community for a lot of things, but especially tech and technology, software and, and cybersecurity and all kinds of things. And we have Fort Detrick right here and we have a lot of government contracting opportunities. And I mean, it's all right here in our cozy little town um, without too much traffic just yet. Um, and a nice uh, standard of living and everything else. It's a great place to live. So that's really what Tech Frederick is about. And um, we're just trying to increase the awareness for people. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed the organization. You know, I've, I've had several members on the podcast already, and it's, it's pretty cool. But yeah. it, it's also cool to see how diverse that group is, right? The board is where whether you're a CEO of a tech company or you're, you know, your law firm that handles IP law and things like that. And because mm-hmm. it's one of those things I, I just I don't think about initially. <laughs> Every, you know, a, a well-constructed board will have all kinds of uh, individuals on it and insurance guys and tax guys and law right. guys. And then, you know, the crux of the board is tech-related, uh, and they know the tech stuff. Right. Um, so that's what they do. So, um, like, being involved with that organization and you yourself, you know, been here since 2006 and have dealt with different tech companies and law, like, where do you see the, the community going with, you know, the tech community going with the next five years? Wow, that's a good question. I'm, you know, tech can go a thousand different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, especially... Being so close to government here, I think cybersecurity, especially 
Um, that's kind of the n- new age warfare is, is the cyber breaching. Um, so I think that's going to be a, um, a huge place uh, for jobs and growth um, and generally government contracting, I think, for our area. Especially you, considering how close we are to D.C. Yeah, right? yeah and, and, and you already see the growth in the government contracting. Um, there are incredible opportunities um, for small shops even that are popping up around Frederick to, to do good things. You see uh, all these tech transfer opportunities from public to, to private, which is incredible. Um, a lot of that is uh, coming out of Fitzy, um, okay. which is great, the incubator. Um, and, you know, the other thing um, that we're – the one issue that we're seeing that we're all seeing nationally is there are all these great tech jobs and no one to fill them. There's something right. like 600,000 jobs sitting unfilled in, in the nation right now, and Maryland has a ton of those jobs. Um, and so uh, I also happen to be the president of the Fort Detrick Alliance here, which is an organization that's kind of um, bringing awareness to the community about the Fort Detrick and what they do and, and trying to tie the relationship there. Um, and one of the things that we do is we work on workforce development and education. One of our main initiatives right now is trying to increase the apprenticeship and the internship opportunities for students in the area and trying to tie them with the companies that are in area that are in need of all these students. Um, you know, education, I think, is uh, higher ed is in a transitional place right now, I think. Um, going from kind of our standard, everyone goes to four years of college and then you get, get a job or go to grad school or whatever it is, but everyone goes to four years of college. Right. I don't think that's going to be the model for so much longer. And you can all already see the transition now where, you know, really to be uh, successful in a lot of ways in the tech field, you need, uh, you know, all kinds of certificates and practical uh, specific training. And so you can forego a lot of that, you know, general education, liberal arts education. Mm -hmm. If you could focus that more on the certificates and the specific education that you need, more bang for your buck, return on investment, more re- immediate return on investment, and the companies that are you know, in so much need of these people will get their people. And so I think you're going to start seeing a transition very quickly here from more from a standard kind of four-year college format to a much more almost like technology school, trade school kind of format where people get what they need immediately for not so much money and they get a good job right, right. afterwards. And you know, that's, that's okay. That's good. Yeah. And I think that's something that's not just here in this local community in Frederick. I think that something in general, right. yeah, right. it makes more sense where you know you can go to a boot camp for 12 weeks and become a front end developer pretty yep. quickly, especially if, if you have the, the appeal for that kind of work, you know, you can just do that and forego four years. <laughs> exactly. And not to say that college isn't a good experience and it's not a good education. There's a lot of things you will learn there, right. but most of the times when you're dealing with very specific types of things in IT, you can learn that pretty quickly. Right. You don't have to wait four years for that. Right. And I think it's actually, I mean, I don't know, but I think it will hybrid eventually where the, the four-year kind of liberal arts college will obviously see what's going on and react to the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And they'll incorporate a lot more of that specific training. And so maybe it is. Maybe you still go through the four years of college, but instead of doing general education credits, it's a much more focused, specific kind of training with more apprenticeship and internship opportunities as you go through and, and you come out. Because like you say, there are 
obvious benefits to going to you know a college for four years, social and uh, mm-hmm. type of benefits, and just learning about culture and life and how to deal with people and how to live on your own. There's all kinds of benefits that go along right. with that. So, um, but I think it will probably some be some sort of hybrid. That's cool. That's, that's very yeah. interesting. Yeah, I'd like to talk more about that if we can. <laughs> <laughs> At least maybe in a different episode. Yeah, right, but, right, sure. Yeah. So, so let's, uh, Mark, you have any additional questions or? No, we answered all my questions. <laughs> great, great. Yeah, like you did. <laughs> yeah th- so let's wrap this up with the okay, last sure. question where um, have you had any recent purchases of less than 100 bucks that most improved your life or recently improved your life? Ooh, less than $100 that, re- that improved my life. That's a good question. What have I purchased recently? I buy a lot of bike parts. I'm a cyclist, so I buy a lot of that stuff for under $100, but nothing that sticks out to me that's... Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a cyclist, too. I love yeah. my bike. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I buy a lot of bike parts for, I guess, under $100. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't any, know. Any anything books or anything, anything else? Anything specific? Um, well, it's, it could be anything. It could be a specific bike part that changed the way you ride. What did I buy? Oh, the uh, most recent purchase that was under $100 was a wobble board to increase the strength of my legs and my ankles. How about that? That's awesome. That's worth it. <laughs> Last <laughs> night, I was uh, watching the, the Penguin game, the game standing on my wobble board, uh, just back and forth with my feet. So there you go. Very that nice. was uh, $11. Eleven dollars, nice. and it, and it, sh- it may be life changing. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm have to check that, that qualifies. Out. Yeah, that's <laughs> absolutely. Well, Mar- uh, well, I mean, Hank, thank you so much. You know, thank appreciate you. like your sure. your advice and you know, a lot of the things that we touched on. It's just I, I understand they're all like case by case basis, right? Um, you know, really appreciate you just laying out the the fundamentals of what you know startups would need to go through, kind of how they have to lay that foundation, like you were talking about. You know, whether it's someone like you as an attorney and an accountant and then really, you know, see like where what is your goal at the end and what are you trying to accomplish? If you're yeah. just trying to, you know, create software and sell business, then, you know, here's one track. If not, if you're trying to get acquired, here's another track and things like that. And the journey along the way is one of those things that I, I as a developer, I wouldn't think about firsthand. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm sure most of your clients don't think about firsthand, right. which is why they, they go to you. So, Well, yeah, like I say, my clients do what they do very well, mm-hmm. and we help them with the rest. So it's perfectly natural. That's what everyone goes through. You, you just know what you do. That's why you do it. Right. Um, and, and we can and help Hank, you with the you rest. And know, Hank, you do what you do very that's well. Right. <laughs> that's right. That's what you're here. So, so, yeah, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Um, you know, we look forward to seeing how Frederick transitions in the next five years. And I, I'm really interested in that that notion you're talking about where the schools are going to change, you know, whether it's here locally or nationally. And to see how organizations like, you know, the the Fort Detrick Alliance and how they try to um, create more opportunities for internships and things like that for students so they can learn and understand, hey, is this something, is this is a track that I want to go down, you know, right. in terms of my career path after school and things right. like that. So right. it's really cool stuff. And yeah. also look forward to more of the Tech Frederick. Yeah, Tech absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, come on out and check it out and um, come to all of our events. We have quarterly uh, networking breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we also have networking uh, get-togethers in the afternoon as well. So you guys so. just had one recently last week. Yep, yeah, yep so. exactly. A lot of different stuff going on. So thank you very much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, Enjoy talking to you. Real yeah. quick, if anyone wanted to check your site out, where, where would they go? Sure. It's uh, henrymartinlaw.com. So all one word, Henry Martin Law. Um, my full name is Henry Martin Abramson. That's where that mm-hmm. comes from. But most people call me Hank, and they're like, "Where? who's Henry Martin? You know? <laughs> so that's the answer. Uh, that's where it comes from. Okay, that's 
cool. And then you serve people, Frederick or just Maryland, like you said, Maryland in general and stuff like that? Yeah, I'm licensed in Maryland. The, the federal stuff, trademarks and copyrights, I can help people anywhere. But for most of the stuff I do, it's Maryland. But I represent folks from, you know, Frederick, Eastern Shore, uh, Western Maryland, Montgomery County, Havard Grace, all over the map. So awesome. Yeah. So if you guys are looking for to start a new startup tech company or even a, a brewery or microbrewery, there Talk to go. Hank. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks.